Join me, Professor RPG, as I sit down with friends, colleagues, and special guests as we reminisce and discuss role-playing games that left their mark on us. Expect to see all sorts, from western style to Japanese and even tabletop. So stay a while and listen, and let us trigger those memories of tales long since completed. Relive that fantasy you hold dear, and come along with us, adventurer, on this quest into the past. Welcome to the RPG University. Class is in session, and once again, I am your host, Scott White, also known as Professor RPG, and today we are rolling some dice and making some character sheets. I have the yeah. pleasure of welcoming back to the university one of the writers behind the gloriously violent and fantastic retro-inspired Infernax, and one of my wonderful PAX West panelists, Hunter Bond, to talk about old-school Dungeons & Dragons and red boxes. How's it going, Hunter? Hey, how's it going? Doing, uh, it's doing good. well. It's good. Doing Sorry, good. yeah, that's not a high energy intro. Here, hold on. It's going great, man. Everything's <laughs> wonderful. No, I'm doing. I'm doing good. Um, no, I'm excited to get to talk about this because none of my friends want to hear it anymore. Uh, <laughs> I've exhausted. It's a whole new all of my, Yeah, all of my social outlets for talking about the nuances of the different editions of uh, pre-advanced Dungeons and Dragons for some reason over the years have dwindled. I don't know why. Can't believe it. I don't believe that. But yeah, like you mentioned, we are here to talk about the old, old editions of Dungeons and Dragons pre-advanced. Oh, ooh, that's so pretty. So you're not all seeing the video, but Hunter is busting out his wonderful collection. Yeah, I own. I so I own uh, quite a few of the things we're going to talk about. Um, so I don't own just the PDFs of them. I've, I've collected them because. One thing for me, and part of why I like playing old D and D, there's no there's no problem, right? It's, they're kind of expensive to collect and things mm -hmm. like that, so there's absolutely no shame in using a, a print on demand PD. However, you got to get your hands on those rules. Um, but I really like having the things. My, my, and that mine aren't in collectors. Sensation. Yeah, yeah, and they're not in collectors' condition. All of these have yeah. been used, like pretty. But I want to use them, so they don't need to be in collectors' condition. Yeah. Uh, um, but or... yeah, so we, we, there's a bunch of pre that, that i guess we we got to put a distinction somewhere because you didn't want me on for like a five episode series so the uh or the split I? here would i mean you call, you call me back <laughs> i can keep going but so we'll we'll kind of split this at i'll probably talk a little bit about some advanced dungeons and dragons and it, there's a reason for that but really we'll kind of draw the line at what would usually be called what one e slash oe like first zero basic kind of. So that's a complicated distinction that we can get into. Yes. Um, but yeah, so pre-AD&D is kind of what we're talking about primarily today. Okay. Um, Before we so dive yeah. in, I want to know a bit of your history, Hunter, with the tabletop RPGs in general, and kind of your, what is your tabletop family tree of characters? Like, what are some characters that you have played in these games? Okay, yeah, cool. All right. Um, yeah, so I am kind of a perma DM and uh, have been for a long time. I have played, of course, yeah, but I would say the uh, ratio of hours played to hours dungeon mastered has to be at least 100 mm -hmm. to 1. Like, it's, you know, very, very rare. Um, when we were kids, one of my, my group of friends, it would bounce back more often mm -hmm. as we were kids. But as we got older, no one wanted to keep DMing, so it fell to me. So uh, my my tabletop 
RPG pedigree, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, is I started playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was nine years old. Um, I had a stepdad who played uh, second edition D and D because that was at the current edition too. Okay. Um, he, yeah, when I was nine, it was still pre third edition because I'm old. Um, and so he, you know, it was at a time where the height of the satanic panic had tapered somewhat, you know, mm-hmm. but D&D was still not widely accepted and popular in like suburban areas yet. And so my mom was not a particularly religious person or didn't really generally fall for that kind of stuff too much, but was kind of hesitant to let me play it as a kid until that stepdad told her like, no, it's, you know, it's, it's a nerd game for nerds. You make, yeah. you know, stories about fighting dragons. It's not about sacrificing cats or anything. So she, let me get a set of my own D and D second edition books. And he did it's I'm sad that I never had to experience this. Cause it's not a thing anymore, but back in the older days, especially we can talk about yeah. it in OD and D too, is they used to have Dungeons and Dragons tournaments. Oh, events. interesting. There were modules that were designed to give scoring so that groups could compete against each other in like a scored tournament of Dungeons and Dragons. And they did do that in second edition as well. Uh, and he used to do that. That was his thing. He'd go down to our local game store and play like D and D tournaments. Uh, and I always thought that was super cool. And I never got to do one. Oh um, man, we got to bring uh, that yes. back. Well, you can. You Side can just run one if you want. I right? know, but you like should... we got to do like a competitive D and D league. So the thing, uh, hold on. I'm gonna put a pin in yeah. that, and we'll loop there. Which is <laughs> so that was I came in in, for, in second edition, mm-hmm. and when when third edition came out, uh, I moved to that and thought it was pretty great because at the beginning of third edition, it was a, the restatement of the rules really solidified a lot of things. And we were also yeah. too young to understand what, what was lost with second edition. There were a lot of cool things that didn't make that transition and a lot of things that were terrible that didn't make that transition. <laughs> so like it was a mixed bag, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I kept playing until probably about 17 is when I got pretty busy. Cause I've had a full-time job off and on with very few breaks since 15 mm-hmm. so when i was like 18 i started going to college too and it was you know the dias was a diaspora of my friends as we aged my group you know kind of yeah. broke apart even though i'm friends with them still so there was a bit of a gap there and i came back in early in fifth like when fifth edition launched it dragged me back in um i was able to get a group going because at the time i was working at the clothing company jinx mm-hmm. and so i ran D games at jinx for a while and that kind of just relaunched it. And then now my current girlfriend, uh, you know, I, I taught her to play, or I guess at least that was her first DM. Yeah. So, uh, it's it's hard to say you taught someone to play D&D, but you can introduce them to the concept yeah. of it. You can uh, get them so hooked. So she started hooked on right. the hobby. Oh, but boy, her current literal job is hand-making custom resin dice for Dungeons & Dragons. So she's so hooked. She's oh, hooked. if she does commissions, I might I might need to uh, yeah, commission some dice. She does really, really great work. It's been awesome watching her become like arguably more passionate about that stuff than me. Where like I like D and D, I have the giant collection of books, but my favorite dice are black. Like I have a set of black dice, white numbers. Mm-hmm. Job done. Yeah. Uh, but so that that's what happened. And then somewhere between bringing back fifth edition, I played uh, interspersed with that kind of narrow thing. When we played second edition. We also, I had the, the what would be considered the, in the 1983 basic set, not basic set, it's the Menser basic set, yeah. which is a different thing. Yeah. I found a copy of that in a thrift store one day. Didn't really know all that much about it because I was too young to 
understand what was going on, got really confused because if you're playing second or third edition, those books have rules that let you go all the way up to level 20-ish, right? Mm -hmm. And the basic box set, regardless of which one, are both just designed to get you to level three. They both stop at level three. And so I was like, where are the rest of the rules? This sucks. And then, (laughs) like, read them, tried to play them with my friends, and we didn't really get that deep into it. And then... um, during the pandemic and i've been collecting all the i you know slowly collecting retro games and reading them like a madman for years and i really got into osr which has a really bad rap for understandable reasons because some of the people in osr like old rules and are grognardy and exclusionary right they're like our rules are the best and like and what is osr for people that might not be familiar with it uh yeah the well there's a couple of different descriptions often old school role-playing is one of them or the or the old school renaissance those are both often things and really it started with there's a there's a using so third edition created the osr it's a weird thing when third edition came out they created the open gaming license which Mm -hmm. allowed people to make content based on third edition but what it did was it also technically let people remake interpretations of previous versions of Dungeons and Dragons as long as they didn't use the exact words that are copyrighted. So if you want to make a copy of the mechanic, because you can't copyright mechanics. That's yeah. that's it. You can't. Yeah. You can't copyright rolling a 20 sided die, but you can copyright Bigby's crushing hand. You can cr- mm-hmm. those words and they have. So when you see the. The, you know the system reference document that they made for third edition crushing hand i think they just took the spell out entirely but if they kept it in it would just be crushing hand right they would take mm-hmm. all the named stuff out of it um so by doing that they created a pathway that let somebody make this thing called osric which was the old school role-playing index uh, and codex i think i'm trying to remember what the acronym stands for but it's called osric and it was like one of the first attempts to restate the thesis if it were of these old school rules old school reference and index compilation compilation thank you thank you and um that kind of spawned forward into there are now and i own all of them because again i have a problem there's like 19 different ways to own the basic rule set for dungeons and dragons (laughs) like the the you know when people say basic they usually mean there's two ways the there's the red box that has the mm-hmm. Larry Elmore art of the warrior fighting a dragon on the front. And that's the 1983 Very classic. I love it. Uh, that's the one I found as a kid mm-hmm. um, and still have that copy actually. And didn't realize that there are differences though. There are actually three separate basic sets. Um, the very first one is, is the Holmes set is written, written by Holmes. Mm-hmm. And that one has a lot of like, it's good. There are out of, out of the, there is like a console war between these three sets among <laughs> fans of old school D and D. That one has like the least fans, right? That's the that's the Dreamcast. Like it's not bad. There are people who love it. It's just not a big faction. Um, then there's what's usually referred to as BX, which is Basic Expert, because um, the the second set, mm-hmm. um, which is the Moldvay Cook. Those are the names of yeah. the editors. Their last names. Yeah, the Moldvay Cook BX set, which came out in 1981, restated a lot of the rules from that home set really a lot of it was they unified things took out some of the cruft because it D as a game is like photoshop where they like haven't removed enough of the old stuff so it slowly becomes a monster right? yeah <laughs> like, yeah so they they restated the rules again and they're they're pretty good but they only made um the basic set which were rules for levels one through three and then the expert set which is levels four through 
six, I believe. And, and that so, came like, in the blue box, right? The that expert set was it, blue box. The expert set you're talking about right here is the that's the companion set. Sorry, I know there's no visuals for anybody, but yeah, it comes in the blue box, which is um, so the cool. the rules for those. Uh, and and the the really big thing is um, the home set, the very first one, mm-hmm. came with an adventure called uh, Into the Unknown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a cool idea that didn't land, which is their idea of giving you that was, well, what we're going to do is we're going to give you an adventure that's like half finished. It's a dungeon and all the rooms are there, but they're not like populated. And like you as the dungeon master get to decide like where the treasure is and things like that. But because Dungeons and Dragons primarily when it came out at the time was Really, you know, kids, yeah. and also just kind of a new concept. A lot of people ran it without realizing that the point was that this was a half-finished dungeon. So it feels like a weird, feels like playing a, um, like a, an early immersive sim where it's just wide open plains <laughs> because there's too much space. If you don't populate yeah. the dungeon, like half the rooms have nothing in them, and so they they real they learn from that mistake. And so my favorite version, just to like. Mm-hmm is the BX edition, which is the 1981 edition. Uh, and that's partially because uh, I am of the belief that Dungeons & Dragons spirals out of control beyond a certain set of levels. I think that I've never successfully played a campaign that I, as a Dungeon Master, mm-hmm. have enjoyed up to level 20. Because you start to combat bogs down, and you, you lose that kind of, like, we're scoundrels diving right. through, like, a, a crypt for gold, and any goblin could be our last, you know... Um, so BX is really cool because it has a lot of weird flavor. And, you know, I would say that the contrast between what is appealing to me and the people I play with about playing these old editions, right? Because they're not, it's hard to say they're better. They're not. They're very, very different. And they serve very different goals because uh, I'm lucky that I play with a group of guys right now who are in their 40s and early 50s. Like mm-hmm. some of them are about 51 and the rest are somewhere in the middle of their 40s. And because like we have about a 15-ish year age gap mm-hmm. between all of us, but I started pretty young and some of them started about as young as I did. So they've been playing forever and ever. But the lethality of those old games is always touted as like a bad thing, right? They are real lethal. There's yeah, you early on in, in the... Lot. High but, high chance of death. There is, but the high chance of yeah. death makes surviving feel so good, yeah. right? It's kind of like a Dark Souls game right. in that, like, I and I've tried to pitch this to a lot of my friends who play Fifth Edition primarily, right? And it is a, it is an incredibly hard sell, but it is if I could just convince you to sit down and play a session, some people would legitimately just hate it, you know, like the the thing that a lot of people find weird about the games is, I mean, I can, if I pulled out one of the booklets to show you the entire game rests in a single booklet, that would be like a splat book from third edition. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like 40 ish pages, maybe 60, the whole, the whole thing, all of the rules to play dungeons and dragons and all the monsters and all the treasure and everything fits all within those pages. You could just take that. That's like, you know, I, uh, to, to name drop for funsies, yeah. you know, a, fr- a friend of mine, Zolivir Nelson, who who's the creative director of Strange Scaffold, uh, we talk about D&D all the time because he hasn't gotten to play a lot of Dungeons and & Dragons, and I always rant at him about how I love these old editions. And the thing I find so interesting is the lack of rules can be freeing from the right point of view. 
because the yeah. lack of a rule is not a restriction. It just means that the outcome is not defined, mm-hmm. um, which as a dungeon master, I like a lot, but like, you know, this is a visual, but yeah. the So yeah, it's 60, 64 pages counting the back cover. And technically there is enough in this book to play Dungeons and Dragons with your friends for the rest of your life. It, you're not going to level up super high, but yeah. you could repeat repeatedly play D and D if you pair that with the the other you know the other yeah. 64 pages in the expert rule set that'll get you up to level six you get oh yeah a bunch of new monsters and magic and stuff but also again i think a lot of people talk about the idea of like leveling to these high high levels and that was never i mean that was cool but the concept of living that long becomes wacky when i can recount i'm currently running keep on the borderlands mm-hmm. which is a an embedded adventure from the the basic bx set in 81 and i'll loop back because that is an awesome it's like one of my favorite adventures of all time but i'm running it for that group of friends and i was like hey guys it's pretty brutal everybody roll up three characters right it's like i'm playing with five players mm-hmm. they all rolled up three characters because i i knew that they weren't all going to survive a surprising number of them did survive <laughs> all things considered but there was like one fighter. Someone made like an elf fighter, and he's yeah. like, "Oh, I maxed my HP was maxed out because in in the basic edition you roll for XP starting at level one, or like you roll your HP at level one. Mm-hmm. So it's not only is it possible, but there are definitely in that current party. There's a wizard who at level one had one HP, and there's like a you know a cleric with like two HP. And, yeah. And so, but you'd think that those would be the guys who are dead. They're still alive. They're like level three now, <laughs> but that ma- the fighter that he rolled that had like an 18 constitution. And uh, cause again, in older editions, the newer way of doing it often is you can roll your scores, assign them as you would like mm-hmm. very various ways to make the uh, RNG of rolling. Often people just use a standard array now. Yeah. I don't know if do I need to explain that or no, nah, it's fine. Okay. Yeah, the standard array giving you a set of stats that you can assign, right? So that right. all characters are hypothetically equal. If you do the rolling method now, though, it's often a very forgiving one, which would be like roll 46 mm-hmm. and drop the lowest score and then also put them in the order you want. That's really generous comparatively to the old school way, which is you roll three dice in a row six times. That's your character. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's a couple of rules of what you're allowed to, to trade two to one. Certain stats can't be traded at all, etc. But there's very little of that going on. So your character can often be dictated by you roll those stats and you're like, well, I got 17 strength. So Mm -hmm. either I'm making a very strong wizard or I'm going to go fighter. And so he maxed that guy's HP. He had like a really strong, really high constitution, like just a golden child. First fight, he got stabbed in the neck by a goblin and died. (laughs) Immediately died. (laughs) (laughs) Like the very first attack of the campaign, he died. So in these older editions, was your class dictated upon what stats you got in like what stats you were able to pull like even if you like your example the elf warrior let's say he really wanted to be an elf warrior but the stats didn't line up to let it like right. were there prerequisites because like even so now there are cool, quote cause... unquote like when you multi-class there are prerequisite values yeah. you need to hit so this loops back to something funny. So I technically am using some homebrew stuff in that campaign because if I was running the BX rule set, as is, you can't be an elf warrior because there's no difference between race and class in the in the That's as right. written BX. There isn't. You can only be an elf. So what I had them do because they weren't stoked about that because they were like, oh, I want to play like an elf warrior. 
Um, I used, there's something called the Basic Fantasy RPG, which is a restatement of the rules again, mm-hmm. which is a D20 fired version of it. Very cool. If anyone is listening to this and wants to play what I consider to be a pretty accessible version of this style of play that like is very easy for someone who comes from a standard third through fifth edition D20 style yeah. game, there's a guy named Chris Gonerman. Uh, he made this interpretation of it. It's not exact, but boy, is it much closer than you'll probably get with anything else. And he sells it for super cheap. All the PDFs are free on his website, and you can buy the print-on-demand version from Amazon for $5. Oh, wow. It's the best money you can possibly spend on an <laughs> RPG. Because, again, it's like a it's the whole book. It's got the monsters. It's got the rules for the What's DM. What's it called? It's called the Basic Fantasy Role-Playing Game, so BFRPG. And it is it's really cool. It's like an artifact I suggest anyone who likes role-playing games buy because, mm-hmm. A, it's $5. B, it has some of the best advice on dungeon mastering, practically speaking, on any edition. Um, it's just a great book. But So yeah. I let them choose stuff from that. So him being an elf warrior is technically homebrew. So, yes, you can't be certain things without a proper prerequisite. Now, not every class has one because if that was the case, it would be possible to roll a character uh, they couldn't maybe be anything, although there are rules for that as well. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so um, I'm trying to remember. So th- most of them do have prerequisites to some degree, but really what you want more than a prerequisite is there's XP bonuses for having stats above a certain amount. Oh. So like you can't, the one that's really hard is um, uh, you can't, it's hard to be an elf. <laughs> it's actually pretty <laughs> hard to be an elf. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, what the requirement i want to put that on a t-shirt there are a few things that like little lines people have said like during this show that it's like put that with a funny little caricature on a shirt hard to be an elf it's a hard being an elf uh so yeah for elves elves have two prime requisites which make them really hard again because you're rolling in order right yeah so to be an elf in the bx edition in the 80 you have to have um a 13 of greater in both strength and intelligence. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I always get my the way prerequisites work. Mm-hmm. Anyone can hypothetically roll as whatever class they want to some degree, but no sane person would unless they reach the prime requisite because the XP bonus is what you need because XP is very difficult. So in in BX, it they you know the prime requisite locking you out of yeah. classes. That comes in later. That comes in with like um, once they introduce uh, paladins and bards and and other subclasses. Uh, it's more that if you don't have the proper stats, you will you will level slower. And that's an interesting thing about these older editions too. Is in fifth edition, you know, like I'm just going to contrast yeah. it with that because anybody who knows about the older editions already knows probably half of this. All classes level at the same XP, right? All classes level at mm-hmm. the, the exact same tiers. And that's not the case with these older editions. Um, Elf is objectively just better <laughs> in a lot of ways than everything else because they're the only class that is an effective fighter and a magic user at the same time. They, you can be both at the same time, which makes you mm-hmm. really powerful. But it takes almost twice as much XP as a fighter to level to your next level. So thieves, for instance, kind of suck at the beginning. They get a bunch of cool spells or, or like skills. You know, mm-hmm. they can pick locks and stuff. But they're the fastest leveling class. By the time an elf makes level two, a uh, thief's already level three. <laughs> like thief's already. <laughs> so that it, that tiered leveling system yeah. of XP is cool because if you're getting group XP, um, your thieves are going to be level three by the time your elf is level two, and that kind of balances the fact that again, 
elves are just kind of better, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have to balance every class to make sure that each class was of equal power. They also had the option to make the better classes level slower. What an interesting game design kind of direction to go down um, to approach it that way. It's so these like the basic set and everything. This is even pre Thaco, correct? It uses a very it's basically it, it still uses a table, but it's not quote unquote Thaco yet. And for they, those, they had not they had not called it that yet. Yeah, yeah. To hit armor class zero, which is still a concept I haven't quite wrapped my head around. But one All day right, you ready? All right, no, I can do it. I can okay. do it. I can make Okay. It. All right. So it's descending armor class. That's what Thaco often is called nowadays, mm -hmm. right? Is that the concept that if you were wearing no armor, your armor class would be 10, which is weird, but that's how it is. Uh, and then instead of gaining more to that, you lose numbers from your armor class as you become more armored. So if your dexterity, for instance, would improve mm -hmm. your armor class by two, you would now have an armor class of eight instead of 10. You go down. And then uh, if you're wearing chainmail and that improves your armor class by, I don't remember, three, four, something like that, now you're down to four. And so zero is, generally speaking, very heavily armored, right? Mm -hmm. I They kind of arbitrarily chose zero, which is what makes that go weird. And it's not actually as hard to play with as a lot of people make out because the traditional thing is at the bottom of the older sheets, it had a little matrix where you could yeah. fill it out. It would tell you what your, your hit would be and you would just fill it out. So you would just have to ask your you know dungeon master or he could tell him. So it's... Yeah. It is better. Ascending armor class is almost objectively better. I actually, we are currently, while playing that BX game, I do the conversions in my head on the fly because if you subtract 19 from the descending armor class, you can back convert it to just be like, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's weird. But yeah, so anyway, Thaco is that you are, here, hold on, wait, I'm going to make it worse for you. Just okay, for second, cool. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. The reason that Thaco is terrible is uh, in, in second edition, at least, um, negative armor classes exist. So you can, if you have like magical ring mail mm -hmm. and like a ring of protection, you can get down to negative two armor class. And so if your character had a Thacko of, let's say 10, because I hate math, uh, if your Thacko is 10, that means you have to roll above a 10 to hit somebody with an armor class of zero. But this person, normally you subtract their armor class from your Thacko to determine what you need, right? Well, if you have negative, you have to subtract a negative number from your Thaco, which means that you have so to you add, add it. it? <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> oh, that's so right. This totally sounds objectively better, Hunter. Uh... It's so much. It's so much better. No, it's not. There's a reason that almost no, like ascending armor class was the biggest change third edition brought around officially, mm -hmm. and I don't think anybody's really mad about it. Like, I don't think very few grognards are like, "Nah, we got to go back to where the." That wasn't what made the system good, right? It yeah. was more just that, like, um, you know, a good example is, like, in a lot of the items that exist in these older editions exist in newer editions, too, right? Uh, like, Boots of Elvenkind uh, are an item that's still Classic. around. And they get, I think nowadays what the effect is, is I think they give you advantage on stealth, something like that, I'm assuming. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah, you can check me on that. But... I, I had to award it to one of my players recently and had to look it up in the, the magic item table uh, inside of the BX book. And I believe that they're just called boots of elf in this. Let me double check that. And but, yep, uh, magical boots that allow the wearer to move silently regardless of service they 
on which they walk mechanically. This grants the wearer advantage on stealth checks that rely on not being heard while moving. So that's like that right there. And what I'm going to find is a great example of the difference between BX and fifth edition. So that's cool. That's a good, well-reasoned, mm-hmm. well-explained mechanic. Right. All right. So in BX, the same <laughs> item, uh, it's called uh, Elven Cloak and Boots. That, but So Elven Boots. Um, uh, wearing, while the boots allow a person to move silently. It says, wearing the cloak will make a person nearly invisible, while the boots will allow a person to move silently. That's it. That's the entire rule for that. <laughs> You're just silent. It's fluff. It's flavor text. No, what what I mean, though, is that you're just literally silent, as the rules say, right? It's it's up to interpretation, I guess, what that means. But it's left very wide. So as a dungeon master, you have to decide, like, does that, like, in what cases would that maybe not apply, right? Mm -hmm. Like, would, it wouldn't muffle water, right, if they walk through it? Like, so earlier editions didn't have a lot of rules because there's, um... There's kind of an ethos, and, and this is talked about even in the first edition, the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons yeah. Dungeon Master's Guide. Gary Gyax goes on a long tear, which, like, those books are great, even if you don't want to play them, because you get to read what a lot of people call High Gygaxian, which is him just riffing in, like, the weirdest, mm-hmm. most specific language about rules. And he talks about the concept of rulings, not rules, right? You cannot like old-school D&D, and that's fine. But no, understanding the concept of rulings, not rules, is important is an important thing to know about what the difference was, which is that not only was there not a rule for everything in these books, because you have 64 pages for everything, but people didn't even really think that way when they were designing it in the first place. Right. And I think a lot of people think that fifth edition uh, has more rules than it does. It really does. Um, But it's missing a lot of stuff that the minute you drill down, you realize there isn't a frame. For, there's no framework for this. Like, how much does a how much does a bolt of cloth cost? Uh, what if that bolt of cloth is made of a partic- particularly fine yeah. like thing? You can never make rules for everything, but because fifth edition has a lot of rules, when you hit a rules gap, it's kind of hard to just like make something up and then like often it yeah. might clash with like another rule. When there's barely any rules, you can make stuff up all the time. It won't clash. There's no other rules. <laughs> right? It's fine. It's more on just so, keeping your the rules you come up with consistent or really consistent. internally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that's why you hear about all these really, really wild home games, right? Is because it's home rules are a necessity in mm-hmm. in a game where rules don't exist in a lot of ways. Um, and I love that. You know, I oh, like yeah. playing fifth edition. I know I'm not going to probably successfully drag my girlfriend Katie to play uh, BX D and D, and that's okay because I've got my own group for it. And mm-hmm. that's what I mean is I don't think that everyone needs to play it. I think that a lot of people, if they really love role-playing games and tabletop games and the rules and seeing how it has evolved, it's really interesting to read these old editions to see how, you know, like the Boots of Elvenkind, where their origin comes from. Because I got to tell you, after having to give it to that player, that ruling is incredibly problematic. It has made my (laughs) life really hard that he is just silent now because, of course, they gave it to the rogue, and that's been a lot of backstabbing. (laughs) Well, that's interesting that they paired the boots and the cloak together, which now have since been split into two separate magic items. You have cloak of Elvenkind and boots of Elvenkind. Well, that's the thing is they are technically separate just for brevity. They're listed as a single line item in the back. There's a lot of that stuff in the old game. And I I think I love it for its flaws, too. There are a lot of flaws in it. But 
the flaws make it good in that it's kind of like the art itself of those mm -hmm. older editions. If you go look at the monster manual for first edition, the the art for Beholder is like one of the like oh it is this, grotesque yeah, just, and go look at it silly. It's, I I had put together um a, a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago at this point, but a. 10 classic monsters or it might have been five classic monsters to include in your D, D campaign and like where they start and everything and yeah displacer beast was on there i yeah. i wrote about the beholder including their first edition or like their old original uh images or art associated with yeah. them and then uh -huh. where they are now and yet beholder is a squiggly circle with some tendril eyeballs and a there's so much hilarious just face drawn on it it it's and I like I love that though. Oh, you yeah. know, like the the naivete is something you can't replicate mm -hmm. because you know it. It's kind of like I also love Web 1.0 websites, like unironically loving the Space Jam website design. Yes, I I had someone on last episode where we talked about and reminisced about the Space Jam website. It's it's glorious. It's a cultural touchstone, you know. It's glorious. But, is, is there something about, I miss, I was just recently, I just tweeted this out a couple of days ago, and this is the same thing about that art that I like, is uh, I was like, I miss when the internet was weird because no one knew what you could slash shouldn't be doing mm -hmm. on the internet. Like Bob Dole's campaign website from like 1996 is still live, yeah. and it has a link to his wife's cookie recipe. Like it's just mm -hmm. on there. Just list it. It's a bad cookie recipe too. Like if you actually read it, it tells you to cook it for like two seventy for an hour. Oh, like some, yeah. So like, but what could you imagine? Like a modern candidate's website, like an unpolished, oh, I just know. list it's... of like. Well, like as because we brought up Space Jam, I went back on the site, and it's like the background is just repeating star texture. You click on the junior website, and it takes you to a bright lime green, neon green web page and uh, so like the yeah, the, just, the, it's glorious. the art in D, D is like that though yeah. which is that it's polishness reflects we're now we're now third probably like not third gener well i mean yeah technically we might be 50. in the third generation of people who have worked on tabletop games now so you have gygax and arneson and all the you know the like lake geneva originators who are all basically really old grognardi uh, tabletop war gamers, right? D&D mm -hmm. &D originally spawned out of Dave Arneson's Blackmore campaign, which ran on some rules that were like kind of based on a tabletop role-playing game. Um, and then he and Gygax together kind of worked on this rule set uh, called Chainmail. Chainmail is largely attributed to Gygax, but mm -hmm. Arneson is responsible for a lot of the fantasy elements, blah, blah, blah. It all, it's, it, its origin is a war game, a tabletop yeah. war game. And as such, like, Chainmail has, like, basically no art in it. <laughs> like, it's just, like, line art of, like, yeah. a pikeman. There's nothing. <laughs> and then they made the OD&D box set, right, which is called the, the Three Little Books. Yeah, the White Box. Yeah. Or, or I guess if you're really, really OG, the Wood, the wood Grain Box. Oh, there were man. The very first ones were inside of Wood Grain Boxes. Um, but uh, those, those books show a lot of, like, the way that they're approached is also pretty wargamery and mm -hmm. things like that. Like D and D didn't even start to morph into even close to the version people would think of 
uh, until they brought out the supplements uh, for OD&D, which were like um, Greyhawk and Blackmore, because like... Um, Greyhawk was the first introduction, I want to say, of druids. Druids didn't and, exist. And thieves. Yeah. Thieves didn't even exist before that, like at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like, that's what I mean, is like they built piecemeal the things into this. Like the older editions of D&D didn't differentiate wep- weapon damage. <laughs> like in the very first OD&D, everything just did a D6. It's just... <laughs> Like, so, you know, we've come a really long way, but there was like a part in the middle there where the rules are playable because mm-hmm. the OD&D rules are wild. They're super wild. Uh, but they were still like, hey, that that 15-year-old kid can draw pretty dang good. Get him over here. We're going to give him 20 bucks. You're going to draw us a beholder. Like, which you would never see anymore, right? Yeah. Not to, to discredit Wizards, but Wizards is owned by Hasbro. They're a giant corporation, and it shows. Like... Um, they they do some stuff with the way that fifth edition is that I find interesting, and I feel like we've lost a lot because now if you want to run a module yeah. for your for your playgroup, say you're the type of dungeon master who like does not want to world build every single encounter because who knows? There was a reason modules have been popular since the very you know very mm-hmm. early days, and it's because they really can be a great thing to spawn out of. Well, they don't do those like that anymore, right? You have to buy a campaign book, and it's it's written to arc a bunch of levels. Mm-hmm. And I personally have found it so hard to really enjoy those as a dungeon master because the minute your party meets a campaign, everything lights on fire. And the, the idea of these mm-hmm. campaign books are like, oh, well, you can keep them somewhat on the rails for 20 levels, right? And you're like, no, absolutely <laughs> not. The mayor of that town is dead now. Like everything mm-hmm. is on fire. They broke the artifact. Like, and of course, y- of course, you can DM your way around these things. But that was the nice thing about a module that was a kind of a, an episodic. Like, well, we're gonna go to this town, and I guess that town's got spooky headless ghosts or something. Mm-hmm. Regardless of the outcome of that specific thing, you move on to the next thing. You're not yeah. like trapped in that module with the town on fire because that was the only thing you have. And I, I think I understand why they've done it. But I feel like we've lost a lot. I really do miss. And you can run. I own a oh boy. How did I have a collection of modules? But yeah, same. I, I do think we've missed out on people who come in only with fifth edition. Right. There are a lot of really good creators on Dungeon Masters Guild who basically do exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. They fill that gap for like this is an adventure for three to five players of level five to seven. That's great. It just used to be their official way of doing things is they would release sequential things where if you wanted to play so the ghosts of salt marsh they brought out ghosts of salt marsh as a book well that's a compilation it used to be three separate adventures back in the day and they're all rewritten to form kind of a loose campaign in that single book and that's cool and that's actually one of the least bad offenders Mm -hmm. like because they can be played individually yeah but back in the day it was like do you want to play ghosts of salt marsh one and if you don't like it walk away from it and never return that's an option like (laughs) it's fine like uh so I, I do think that there's a lot of merit in those old adventures. They are often written in a way that would be weird for new people, right? Because, again, there's more lifting on the Dungeon Master in those early editions. Mm-hmm. But the lifting is fun, is how I find it compared. Yeah. Um, like, if I had to summarize what I find compelling, like, what's the point of playing a really old version of this freaking game? It's not that it's better. It's just that... I can sit down with like a very minimal amount of prep to play that campaign I'm playing in BX with my friends because other than remembering like what key NPCs are kind of doing and stuff like that, I don't have like all of these weird edge case rules as my players level that are going to totally 
blindside me and things like that. It's a pretty simple system, and it allows me to rule of cool all the time. Yeah. You know? Versus in in fifth edition, I'm not often breaking any rules when I make a ruling in in BX that is just cool because the ruling exists because there wasn't a rule for it. That's why I'm yeah. making a ruling. In fifth edition, often people want to do a thing and it's covered by a rule, and the answer is unsatisfying. <laughs> like often you'll hear people say, "Well, I want to do this," and if you're playing rules as written, you can't. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. There's no rule for that, and therefore you can't do it. But you know, people do it all the time. But that is not a strength of the system that you can choose to ignore it. Yeah. I, I, hear, I hear that all the time, right? It's people like, oh, well, you can just ignore that. And I was like, of course you can. You also could sit at a table with your friends and just tell each other stories. You don't even need dice <laughs> or rules or any of this. Like, you know, that's the, the dice and the rules are there to enable your friends to pretend they're not doing improv, right? Like right. That's, yeah. If you have friends who are comfortable enough, just do improv around your dining room table. That's fine. There are diceless role-playing systems for that reason. So, like, people say... I'm curious. You mentioned how the older systems, you rely much more on the rule of cool, and it's not as... You you feel as there's not much prep that you have to do in in those situations. Do you find that games in the older systems, like the one you're playing, it's far less... that, That people get far less invested in their characters. Like, they view them more as... Sort of. Sort of. Kind of. The answer is cannon fodder answer. as well. Just more like cannon fodder to complete a task, unless I wanted to develop this character and his their backstory and play out, or I just I want to play nameless old, warrior and hit stuff. the old school. You, th- you know what's funny is no, none of my players in that campaign are playing any nameless warriors. They all have like at least a kind of loose character concept mm-hmm. for everybody, even at the beginning. But the old school way of thinking about it is it would be insane for you in playing BXD&D with a level one character to like have written a long ass backstory. It's just crazy. Now, if you have that like rough idea of who they are and they survive long enough that it's like a thing that you want to kind of like lean yeah. more into because you become so much more attached because it's very hard to die in fifth edition. It is not very hard to die in BX as you level it, but you can get some more survivability, mm-hmm. right? Sure. But like there's moments in combat that feel so much more threatening because there's no there's no revival. There's no negative hit points. There's no knockdown. So when one of my players had like two HP left, uh, no, I think he had like three, maybe four, but it was pretty low. And I rolled to hit him. And I, for the authenticity of this, we're playing online, but I have a camera for my dice. So right. I don't use digital dice for this campaign. And I roll that 20 and we all look at each other because we're also not using a digital tabletop. We're playing entire theater of the month. Mm-hmm. No roll 20, just us in Discord with our dice. And uh, and that's much easier to do in these older editions as well. No map, literally just us and our cameras. And one of the guys is drawing the map as I describe it, foot by foot on graph paper. Like their map is him listening to me describe the mm-hmm. room size and orientation. I roll that 20. We all look at each other and he's like, oh man, that's, this is it for Stanley. Like he's done, right? His level three thief with those boots of elf, like, and uh, yeah. plus one dagger and he's about to eat it. And then I rolled that one damage and everyone's like, ah, 
which is like not really a huge deal in fifth edition D and D. Cause if you've got four hit points and someone hits you for four hit points, you just go to negative four hit points and you don't die immediately. Whereas like, yeah. And this, it's like, Oh, you got stabbed. You're dead. <laughs> you, you could drag your corpse back, I guess, and hope they can revive you, but you're all level three. So no one, no three turns to go. someone get to you and cast a random stabilize things. Yeah. I, that yeah. is one of the aspects that, I especially, I don't want to say find problematic, but the newer editions, like especially 5th edition, I've run a campaign with a bunch of friends and my wife for about two and a half years now, and there's definitely been close calls, but it's, yeah, like, it's that fact that they do get that, those three turns of stabilization. So, there are so many ways to it, not die. It's, there's so many ways. Like, one of the rules I've kind of adopted is... Like, if you go down and get brought back up, but you have one death save, it's like, I like playing where that doesn't go away every time you go down. I don't cool. like yeah. that you the just, bounce, every single bounce, time yeah. it, it resets. I, I don't like that. And and I it's it flavor of you the know, party I, and the DM. I have a rule. I have a house rule for that as well, because I feel like um, in-game it feels bad and gamey. Which, here's the thing. Old school D&D is super gamey. Like you were asking, mm -hmm. do people just treat it like a nameless warrior? The only way you can run a D&D tournament, right, is if you're basically metagaming the whole time. Mm -hmm. The whole point is you're using these characters like pieces on a board. So that's a very different play style that's not suited to 5th edition. In 1st edition, um, you know, one of the most famous, it's technically, it's in basic, is um, Tomb of Horrors. One of the most famous, mm -hmm. you know, modules of all time. It's a, from the S series, which is the special events series. A series of modules meant to be run at tournaments. They are meant to be special event modules. That one is meant to kill characters. It is a meat grinder. It's yep. absolutely the worst. It's like, but a lot of people think it's something you drop into your campaign when you decide you hit your friends. And that's not really what it was meant for. It was meant to be a challenge for people who view munchkin-y metagaming as the be-all, end-all of Dungeons & Dragons. It is a challenge for people to be like, go ahead, metagame as hard as you want because you're still probably going to die. This yeah. is so hard that you probably won't live. And that's like not an attitude you hear very much. And I don't play that way generally, right? I right. did not bring that old school attitude. But that was a contingent of how people used to play is they were like, I don't care. Bob three, my warrior is, you know, maxed out to the gills. And so um, so my, my house rule for fifth edition, by the way, to deal with that is um, every time you revive until you ra until you long rest, you gain a level of exhaustion. Mm -hmm. because the exhaustion rules are brutal so it actually makes it pretty gnarly yeah. like you're the one level of exhaustion you're getting disadvantage on like every roll yeah so like yeah you're not dead but like you're not good but like, you were stabbed almost to death and right you don't bounce back i was like okay i got i'm back in the fight it's like you like got your neck slashed stabbed by a goblin yeah. like you said in your earlier example i um, find the problem with that rule too for me as a dungeon master is like i am not a killer dm right that's not it's never been in my dna i don't find glee in murdering people's characters um i don't it's not, i don't have a power trip on it mm -hmm. but i do find that the threat of the threat of character death yeah. is good it's good and effective and i think should always be there in a game where there's combat and stuff yes if you're playing like a if you're playing a narrative campaign game where it's all intrigue and stuff um one why are you playing dnd but two um if you are playing D&D, &D, yeah. sure, maybe there's no threat of death at every conversation. Fair enough. Um, but I don't like what the real outcome of that rule, which is when you drop below mm -hmm. zero or to zero HP, the real answer to that rule is that any sentient creature would immediately stab that creature. 
Right. That's how that's how it would work. Do dungeon masters do that? Not very often because it would feel bad socially with your friends, right? For because there's no saving throw. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to attack them, they're helpless. So you just coup de gras them. Now, do players like to do that on monsters? Absolutely. Do players like it when their character gets coup de gras? No, not so much. Yeah. But especially if you just got dropped and you're fighting two goblins and the second goblin has a turn, by all rights you should be dead. There is literally mm-hmm. no reason that that creature wouldn't just immediately stab you. So that's not fun either. So at least with the older way is like, it's not me doing it. I'm not making a second choice to make you feel even more Bad. bummed. It just, you just, <laughs> you know, the, the fate decided it was your time, right? Not me. The dungeon master could have made a call where you don't die. Even if doing that is not objectively probably the right one, it's not right to not do that. If you have an opportunity with a sentient creature to off a member of the party, really there'd have to be a good reason why they wouldn't do that. And yet it's still not the, you don't hear about that very often. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what happened on Critical Role when everyone lost their minds, right? I don't watch a lot of Critical Mm -hmm. Role, but I know like one of the first major character deaths at one point was one of the characters got downed and then the person attacking him just killed him right because why would yeah. why would why would you not <laughs> like i didn't want to stop it like you getting revived so like that doesn't feel good as a dungeon master to have to make that follow-up to mm-hmm. murder somebody instead of it just being a result yeah i almost like thinking about it and and that i've had that issue as well and it's like if i was the creature yeah I'd make sure this person bleeding out was and still breathing and has killed a number of us already is like super dead but like you said yeah. it it feels bad it feels very bad to do yeah like, <laughs> as a human I'm pur- being the dm purposely trying to kill your character at that point and it's like ah that it, creates and an I agree, issue it, these games need i've been in games where i've had the the dm say oh don't worry i'm not going to kill your characters and just hearing that instantly takes away then you get people doing dumb stuff because they know they won't die i want that risk and and every group is different every dm every player is different but like you said there has to be at least a modicum of risk associated especially with large encounters that it's still a quote-unquote living world and people die and there's risk to your actions there's things you do have to have reactions and repercussions um, first edition just lends itself or basic yeah. you know it all of the earlier editions lend themselves to mechanically reinforcing that that is one of the mm-hmm. things is even if you're a real nice person bad choices have consequences systemically mm-hmm. right you don't there are not very many duck out of like you can't you really can't punch that high above your weight like i ran the, these same guys i ran yeah. them a 5e campaign and we stopped because they were like it's not actually fun anymore because i ran them through white plume mountain which is another cool classic old module and at that point they were like level seven level eight and like one of them murdered a giant sphinx which is like a really powerful monster mm-hmm. he should not have been able to do that right but through tomfoolery he murdered him and some players would think that's fun, but he felt really unsatisfied because he's like, that just shouldn't, that shouldn't happen. Right. Yeah. Like, like, uh, it's the same thing of, Oh, also a big thing we never addressed. Um, there are no skill roles in BX. They don't exist. Like you don't roll persuasion. It's like, all right, I persuade the guard. You're like, cool. Okay. 
go, I'm the guard. Get talking. Persuade like, me, what? yeah. Yeah, persuade me, right? And it's not like, and I like that because I do think that that skill checks are cool, but you, you do find a lot of people default to only using those methods of interacting with the world because if you tell them these are your skills, those are the methods the player will use to interact with the world. If you codify mm-hmm. them, they that's their vocabulary, right? Like playing an adventure game. If you give them a list of 20 verbs, often players will try to find a way to solve the problem using one of those 20 verbs, even if it's like a weird cockamamie way to do it. Because if there are no verbs, you just have to tell me what you're going to do. And it's not a matter of like, when I say persuade me, I don't mean you person who doesn't feel as charismatic as another play. It's more of like, just make a good case, right? Be like, I'm going to convince him we need to go inside before nightfall because there's guards outside. You Mm -hmm. don't have to like one-to-one tell me. Just make a fair case for it. And I'll usually be like, okay, yeah, sure. Like, totally. You're, that's a good point. You're Mm -hmm. a fairly compelling character. Why not? It's cool because a lot of people coming back from 5th edition, I think, would be terrified by the freedom, right? Like a house cat immediately let outside where you're like, there's no rules anymore, man. You just do whatever you want. And like, yeah. uh, you're like, it doesn't like I, I, I got, you know, and there's no, um, I don't want to do something wrong. It's like, there's no wrong way. There's no you, wrong. You just, yeah. Like repercussions you know, and, for what you choose, but they could be good. They could be bad. I mean, there's not, I, I love the effect of there not being a set vocabulary mm-hmm. because the difference to, that, cause that's what a role-playing game is. If you bring it down to a set vocabulary, you bring it closer to a video game experience, right? With a set number of outcomes and inputs and outputs. Whereas a role-playing game should be a ideally, and it, it the the one human mind and another group of human minds working together to co-create a story, right? Yeah. It's an emergent it's emergent gameplay in the form of storytelling with dice adjudication. Cool, great. That's what I love it. That's my jam. And I when there's less, you know, rules about what you can and can't mm-hmm. do, there's more freedom. Now that does create a problem. There's a reason they added those. You gotta have a dungeon master who's not a dick. That's <laughs> <laughs> you know, GM fiat is bad. It's kind of like making the argument that absolute monarchy is great if the king is cool, where you're like, <laughs> <laughs> like that's kind of the the pitch here is that like with a really cool king, it works great. I admit <laughs> that not all kings are cool, so that's the problem. But it does allow for a style of play that doesn't exist in like fifth edition. Mm-hmm. So yeah, of course, finding a dungeon master who doesn't hate you is important and good. That's why you hear all those horror stories because when you give the DM more latitude, if they suck, they can make the game suck more, which yeah. is problematic. Yeah. So what's a feature that you wish was brought in? Like we know that they've already oh, announced so like ready. one D and D couple years down the road. What would you like to see brought back? from these earlier editions, from the BX box, from things like that, that you, that I'm gonna, you missed? I'm so ready for this answer. I'm Hell so glad yeah. that you asked. And the answer is, I'm going to do it myself, actually. But let me tell you what it is. Um, in the older editions, they had something called monster morale, um, mm-hmm. which is that each creature had a morale score attributed to it. And there were various triggers. Of course, whenever you feel like it is the Dungeon Master. But upon, for instance, encountering a party you could roll morale for this group of creatures. And if they failed, they might not even want to fight because they're intimidated. Mm -hmm. Or, and of course some creatures like zombies can't, they don't have morale. They're mindless, but any creature that's sentient enough to have a ability to realize that they are in danger is assigned a score. And at various times, like for instance, once their number is halved or when there's, you know, there are various triggers you roll for them. 
and it creates this thing where not every combat becomes one one group of people standing across from another group of people stabbing each other until one of them is dead, mm-hmm. which feels bad and wrong because like that's how a lot of D and D games become, right? Because like goblins, like I'm not like I'm not a goblin apologist here, where I think we need to mm-hmm. have like a goblin studies class, but I do make a good argument that everyone acts like goblins are dumb, and it's like that's not really they're sentient creatures, right? Yeah. Like you think your dog is smart. <laughs> But you think a goblin is too dumb to do things at least as smart as a dog? They're literally like bipedal creatures that use tools. Yeah. Would you just stand there? It, like you and your five friends are walking down the street, mm-hmm. get into a fist fight with a bunch of bikers, and they stab four of your friends. Would you like stick around to see if you've For got honor. a shot? Uh, no, not. right? You probably would. Maybe you would. That's why there's a roll, right? Yeah. You roll for it. Maybe that goblin's crazy. <laughs> but I do love that it there's... That the, the morale role system is pretty cool because it creates a situation where more often there are different outcomes where you can chase that guy. They run off, right? So you mm-hmm. can try and chase them or they may not want to fight and instead they give you some information to not fight them or it the system creates more interesting outcomes for you as the dungeon master and helps mop up what is often a problem in fifth edition, which is the end of combats, right? Long drawn out combats where it's like pretty clear where this is going, mm-hmm. but there's no systemic end of combat. They don't like there's, so I wish they would bring back morale as a stat, because here's the thing, as people keep telling me, you could just ignore it if you don't want to use it. That's you true. It's just not. Uh, and the other one is reaction rolls, which is that uh, when encountering creatures, people, NPCs, mm-hmm. peasants, things like that, when you're unsure as the dungeon master, they gave you an option to roll a reaction roll to kind of see how they react to you. And that could be modified by your charisma. And of course, you could make the case that that's sort of like a persuasion or charisma roll or whatever. But it's a codified system where it's like it, it basically the system tells you through rules with a thing you roll, not every group is hostile not every Mm -hmm. group does want to fight not everything is immediately combat now of course that's a thing you always have the option to do in any edition of DD. but i think that fifth edition offloads a lot of these choices to the dungeon master they make it your choice and they kind of veil it in well you have the freedom to do whatever you want you're like that's great i'm also in charge of like seven million other (laughs) things like a good example of like what seems like a cool idea and actually i kind of hate is inspiration inspiration is a cool idea because it gives your player like a cool token they get Mm -hmm. to use for a moment of glory that part is awesome love it now let me ask you as someone who's dm what is the official rule of when you award it isn't it pretty much when i feel like it yeah is that a cool system do you like that do you like having to like articulate when you think that someone's cool moment was cool enough but someone else's moment wasn't cool enough I honestly don't really give out DM inspiration. Um, okay. Is it because you find it hard to decide when? Or? Yeah. And it's just like, I've done it a couple of times, but it's always been honestly for little things they do outside of game. Okay. Sure. That, but that's, uh, so the what I mean is they don't have a good yeah. system that right. you can immediately. So I hated it and I kept running into that problem of like what I want to systemize this because I want it to happen, mm-hmm. but I want it to happen outside of my judgment. I love not having to make the judgment between players, for instance, mm-hmm. where I where I decide whose moment of glory is glorious enough. That feels bad, and I don't like it. So taking a page from uh, Dungeon World, which is uh, powered by the Apocalypse game, I never played it, but this one thing is like my favorite part of it, which is you only gain experience points when you fail. 
like you gain oh, experience points when you fail. And so I was like, actually, that's a great way. So the rule in my games is you gain inspiration when you crit fail. If you crit fail a roll, you get inspiration. So it like that's softens a really the good blow. idea. That's a really and cool you, idea. Then you never have to think about it again because all your players know that too, mm-hmm. right? Ever and I like and then it makes crit failing better because you're like, ah, oh, fair enough, right? Well, I got inspiration, and it's awesome because like one, I just wanted I wanted a system. It needed a system because yeah. it, it I wasn't using it and it's a cool thing, and crit failing kind of sucks, you know, to some extent. It depends on the kind of players you have. Mm-hmm. My players think it's hilarious to themselves all the time. Yeah. Because I love I love crit fails. I'm a big fan of usually I give you three options. I'll be like, which of these three, like, would you like for you to have left yourself open for a counterattack? Would you like to have accidentally dropped your weapon? Or would you have liked to have stabbed your friend? Yep. Like, which one of those sounds good to you? And, like, make them choose their fate. <laughs> but outside of doing that, immediately getting inspiration for failing feels cool because what if you're having like the worst i've had everyone's had the worst night like the night Mm -hmm. of like a million ones if you keep getting ones and you keep getting inspiration like it does feel okay like that it's nice sort of like it may not save you yeah yeah so like that's i feel like i I might steal that one please do i've I've been trying so hard to get everybody to get on board because it feels like it's a great idea. Inspiration is cool because like I want it, but I want it to be awarded also in a way where people don't just keep it in their back pocket forever. Right. I want people to know that like, you don't have to please me to get yeah. inspiration. You don't have to, vi- you don't have to create scenarios contrived to create things where I'll give you inspiration. It's not up to me. Fate will decide when you've deserved it. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, I like, but that. yeah. So I like, I like the morale system and the, that, that stuff quite a bit. I think a lot of the stuff is okay to leave behind. Fifth edition's a pretty good edition. Not super stoked on the playtest stuff I've read from the newer edition of One D. Mm-hmm. I think it's a mistake for them to attempt to make it backwards compatible with fifth edition because that's going to limit the options of what they can do. To yeah, I know. think it's Hasbro just being with, especially with everything going on right now with Magic and Hasbro oh, yeah. just fudging everything up. I think it's. D and D fifth editions are our other golden goose. It's our silver goose, and, and I think that we can't. It's important fudge to that up. not get mad. You know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, when you hear Grognards yelling about. So like when I say oh, I'm not super stoked about what I've read in the play tests, um, I just won't play it if I don't want to. You know, yeah. it'll be a bummer to not consume official content for the thing that I love. But I didn't love fourth edition either, mm-hmm. even though. I'm also a fourth edition apologist only just because <laughs> I apologize because it is a not super good role playing game, but it is an incredibly good tactical miniatures game. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that it had some cool ideas in it. You know, it boy, howdy, was it not what I would consider D and D, but it's not like a pile of trash. Like a lot of people would have you believe it's just not a good mainline successor to Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm wondering if they're going to start following the windows model, right? Where every couple of editions of windows was just terrible for a long time. Mm-hmm. It was like, Oh yeah, XP was good. And they brought out windows Emmy. That was bad. And then they brought out, you know, like every yeah. other one was bad. I think, I hope sixth edition isn't that it feels weird. Some of the choices that they're making, like one of the things that I don't love that has has been lost is specificity in certain things mm-hmm. like uh you know they want to say that you can be any size of a creature for instance they don't specify heights for for races anymore and they're moving away from races and like sure okay like 
there's a whole rabbit hole to go down there about like right. race and D&D and everything. But I'm not even coming at it from that perspective. I'm talking about as a dungeon master from a practical perspective. When they do things like remove average heights from races, you lose like how how tall is a dwarf then? You can't have a right? Goliath-sized halfling or a Goliath-sized the, and, gnome. And you you can't, but what it does do is you can have a gnome-sized human, which is on purpose. They want you to be able to do that. They want you to be able to have, you know, to represent people who are human Mm -hmm. that are real and are short. Sure, okay. You could have always theoretically done that because they didn't say that you couldn't do that. They gave you an average height range. Mm -hmm. They don't do that anymore. And so how much taller is a half-orc than a human? Well, by the rules, I don't really know anymore, right? Like, it's up to me, the dungeon master, a new thing you've made me decide now instead of giving me a reference point, which is frustrating because... You can give me more rules to ignore if I don't like them. Like, yeah, is it wizard? Is it worth take scrapping that that single line from everything, or just keep it and add another line that just says right. this is just an average? Feel free to adjust. Yeah, it'd be like just like however, everybody in the real world, people yeah. come in all shapes and sizes of varied amounts. And so don't take these averages as absolutes. Like, that's very much my attitude. I just think it's wild now that I couldn't tell you, according to the new rules, how tall on average a dwarf is. They're medium-sized. That's how tall they are. Yeah. But that's how tall humans are. How fucking tall are they? I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. (laughs) It's, uh... Yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm glad they are doing the whole rounds of playtesting. Yeah. Splitting all the classes up into, like, the distinct, like, three kind of overarching subtypes and then differentiating will be interesting um but yeah it'll it'll be interesting to see how it continues to evolve and i the morality system sounds incredibly interesting i wasn't aware of that i kind of want to look into that now that's what i said by i'm just going to do it is i have all the old books and stuff so i'm probably just going to update it to they used an old 2d6 system i Mm -hmm. bet you honestly if i go look on dm's guild someone else already did this because it's not an incredibly unique idea but i was just going to make a black and white xerox zine that i take the packs and hand to my friends which basically just reinstates two things that i think are very important and are missing from the fifth edition dungeon master's guide and um, Mm -hmm. monster manual which is a morale score for all creatures that you roll to see if they run away and just default treasure boy howdy do i hate (laughs) that they took away default treasure because i understand the goal, which was, you know how it works now. The old books would be like, goblins have like eight silver. That's how they just mm-hmm. have it. Like on average, they just have like eight silver on them. That was great for me. A tired dungeon master who's running a game, and then the thief wants to know what the goblin has on him. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, oh, we got to roll on this chart, and you got to roll three times, and uh, seven silver. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's, I miss shorthand stuff, you know. And yeah. I think that they did away with it because people felt it was restrictive, and sure. If you're going to play rules as written, sure. But I don't, I never felt like giving people shorthand options is bad. Like I do like in the fifth edition book that they just give you parenthetical damage amounts if you Mm -hmm. don't feel like rolling for it, which is, you know, average plus one. Yeah. Like that's great. I use those pretty often. I don't do that for monster HP because I like people to not have any idea, right? Yeah. Maybe one orc has more. But shorthand is good dming is hard yeah there's a lot of math especially if you're home brewing home brewing the world which is what i do and it's like oh, I, I have the history of a goddamn universe 
floating around in my brain that I'm keeping track of on a Google sheet that just constantly gets longer and longer. Just give me a little break. Just a little breather. Yeah, I miss I miss DM tools in that way. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, one of the things I like about old school D&D, too, is you could play whatever kind of game you want in it. But um, I am excited that more people like Dungeons and Dragons. I'm yeah. like an anti gate. I'm a, I'm incredibly anti gatekeepy, right? Like gates <laughs> gates open. Like roll on in. Everybody play. That's cool. Um, but I do find it so disappointing because I've been DMing forever and talking to people about uh, DMing, and I hear so many people be discouraged by what they consider the the bar of quality now for DMing. When you look at a show like Critical Role, which is like professional voice actors, what do you and... mean you're not? You, this isn't how critical. This isn't how D and D's run. I've watched Critical Role. This isn't how yeah. you play D and D. It's like not how Matt yeah. does it, right? Yeah, yeah. And like first edition is wacky and weird, right? Like you can just be like, yeah, the Castellan of this cap, this castle, his name is Steve, but it has two V's and one E, and they're not where you expect it. That's his name. That's his character thing. Yep. That's fine, yep. right? It gets incredibly dumb. And that's kind of how it it it's kind of meant to be, you mm-hmm. know. It's meant, it's inspired by science fiction and fantasy, and like I think one of the things that's lost in the the pure codification of the newer editions, it was it was okay for stuff to be super weird back in BX. Like there's a there's an adventure called this is a spoiler. Anybody who doesn't want me to explain the backstory to like a thirty year old adventure, stop <laughs> listening. But it's uh, called Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. And the twist is this thing that you think is a dungeon you're exploring is a crashed spaceship. And you get like laser guns and swords and stuff and fight like robots. And that was okay. It was okay for stuff to be like weird. And like, yeah, because it's inspired by stuff like uh, Conan, Conan the Barbarian, right? Is in the list of, of inspirational stuff in that first edition D&D Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, it's called Appendix N, by the way, for anyone who wants to go read all of the inspirational stuff that Gygax listed. And uh, Tower of the Elephant is a Conan story. And the twist of, mm-hmm. sorry, again, spoiler alert for like a really old story. Um, <laughs> the twist of that at the end is it turns out that like in this tower, there's a, it's an alien. There's an alien in this tower. So like sci-fi and fantasy weren't as always clearly defined, right? Mm-hmm. Pulpy stuff overlapped like all the time. One of the best Lovecraftian stories of all time is written by Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan the Barbarian. Like they were, it was incestuous and like it just intermingled. And that was cool in D&D too for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you get a little bit of that with Spelljammer now, but it it's so, the fantasy's so normal now, right? It's yeah. so fantasy with a capital F when you're like, and I don't know that that's better for people. I think that that people think that they're really going off the rails by doing what would have always been in the DNA of D&D back mm-hmm. in the day, where it was like, oh, yeah, our, uh, our fighter's got a chainsaw. And you're like, where? What? And you're like, yeah, I just found her in a wizard tower. It's magic. Like, don't don't worry about it. <laughs> D&D. Like, that's it. Like, yeah. we lost some of that, or it was fine for things to just be weird. You didn't need to explain it. Why is that guy got a laser pistol? I don't know. He's from space. Like, yeah. it's... Yeah, I, I miss that. I'd love to see more of that energy because I think people would enjoy DMing more without that pressure and also the knowledge that you can't DM wrong if everyone's having fun. True. That's the only way. And you should be having fun too. That's the other thing a lot of people don't understand because I know people who like their players love it and then they're like drained and unhappy. And it's like, no, you should enjoy it as well. Technically, it's a game you are playing too. <laughs> yeah, you're playing a different role, but you're still playing it. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, it's... I, I could go I might, on about this. I might throw years. in a, a chainsaw into 
some ruin now because that I love that idea. It's a it's a funny one. Ar- Ar- Arca- it's an arcane saw. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's arcane. Uh... I like that. I like that. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, as a DM, what has do you have a personal favorite NPC that you have created in your years of DMing that perhaps a reoccurring NPC or a party favorite NPC that you particularly have just fallen in love uh, playing? Yeah, yeah, there's two. There's two. Um, so there's uh, there's this one NPC that is a, a 90-year-old man. He's a human, ostensibly. A 90-year-old man who's a rogue. He's got like a negative four to dexterity <laughs> because he's so old. And so he's an incredibly terrible rogue, right? Mm-hmm. And his name is Reginald G. Pennyweather IV. Uh, and he spends all adventures that he's on with uh, relating anecdotes about things that like he remembers but can't remember the end ever mm-hmm. he can only remember like the first two halves of any anecdote and then he just trails off and the bit with him which uh the players in that campaign never did find out is that he's a um he's an incredibly powerful wizard who found the uh the secret to eternal life but not to eternal memory <laughs> and so as he kept getting older and older and older he forgot that he was a wizard like he doesn't remember and so he is actually like a level 20 wizard who can like <laughs> travel through time and space, but he's just a really incompetent rogue. Cause he forgot that he knows magic. So every now and then he would wild magic cast stuff though. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like, like a, like a extremely high level <laughs> wall of flame. And he didn't know he did it. Right. So that guy was loved that character. Cause the bit That's is cool. funny, right? Oh yeah. Is a, a wizard who is like so old. He forgot he's a wizard. Um, and then in my last campaign that I was running, uh, they were just going through a thing, and there was like one orc left in a room, and I made the mistake of giving him a defi- like a definitive voice by taking my fingers and putting them next to my teeth and being like, "Hey, how's it going? My name's Gorlag," and they dragged him for the rest of the campaign. He became their best friend. Mm-hmm. They were like, "Yeah, we're gonna strip him of his weapons and stuff, but he can come with us." And he like followed them for a while. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they befriended him and they gave him back his weapons. And he's like a level like seven fighter. And he's been following them around the whole campaign. They were like sacrificing themselves to keep Gorlag alive. <laughs> yeah. His name is Gorlag Gorhan Jr. Because nice. Gorlag is his father. Uh, and yeah, he's just like a really happy go lucky orc where he's like, ah, I was just like, you know, I didn't really want to get into the, like killing adventures. It's just sort of what you do. You know, you're born an orc and you do it. It's, yeah, so they dragged Gorlag around for, like, the whole campaign. He's still alive, technically. The campaign ended, and he's, like, their best friend. Awesome. I've uh, I've recently, in the past little while, introduced a... So, I in my world, there's a, a group of, like, the main mercenary group, the Gilded Hawks, and each main area has a, a branch. And one of the ones I introduced recently, his... All of them have, like, nicknames that that's, like, kind of a sign of you've been accepted by the guild you get it and it's this uh dwarf named hitch uh uh he likes axes he has a kind of new zealand accent and he just really loves axes so he uh, attributes everything to axes and he just in numerous bags of holding right uh just has axes he has 183 axes currently his catchphrase is i've got an axe for that um and like he 
and I've gone on tangents where I just like on the fly make up random acts trivia that sure. not right real. But he just will keep rambling on like that's his thing. He'll keep rambling on about axes, like how uh, scythes are uh, is just another word. Commonly, other uh, other way you can refer to a scythe is a slim axe, or a hammer is just yeah. a blunt axe, and how right. versatile axes can be. Because if you hollow out the middle, it's a it's a X pot. You can cook with it. Uh, yeah. You've got to have a silver one. It's always good to have elementally infused ones to take on these various ones. Uh, but yeah, that's that's my popular popular. If I was one of your players, I would have already attempted to make you. So you can steal this if your players don't listen. But if, I love the idea of him with his accent attempting to um, explain the difference between his uh, axe wife and ex-wife. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I uh you're like, head. oh yeah, my 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 ex-wife. And you're like, ex ex-wife? And you're like, no, 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 no. My, my ex-wife. ex-wife. My ex-wife. And but and then an he does have to have an ex-wife an as well, though, right? Right. They're... Right. That's you see, that's how hitch in his culture, right? That's how you propose is by gifting the one you love an ex. So once that, that is an your ex-wife. That's why right. it's called an ex-wife. In my case, you can have an ex-husband. Uh, it's really quite a romantic gesture. Um, and if your ex-wife eventually leaves you, then it's an ex-wife. Uh, so you have ex-exes, uh, ex-ex-wives. It, it's very confusing, but really once you get it, it uh, it's good. But it's good to get them silver-plated because it Im- improves the durability, right? Uh, infusing them with a couple gems, uh, that always does good. But you want to make sure the pommel's made of a sturdy... Sturdy wood, right? Uh, you don't want to you don't want a soft wood because an ex-wife uh, handle it's supposed to represent the the structure of the 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 relationship going forward, right? So if you give your your wife your ex-wife uh, or if you give your prospective mate uh, a loose or weak uh, shafted ex-wife, uh, you then you the uh, shaft. You, you don't want a weak shift, right? Uh, it's though. Uh, in some situations, you do want a, a soft X shift uh, because it does tend to give a bit more flex, which does offer a bit of a whip, a whipping an, X, an, an axe flex, uh, X flex. Yeah, flex and X wax. Uh, that's what you rub on your soft shafted X's. This uh, is a good bit. Yeah, oh, this is a good. But that, but like this, this is character. this is Hitchit. Uh, I I'm a fan. It's of, great. of your. Your character. Yeah. I have started a actual Google Excel spreadsheet, just breaking down and listing what all the different axes are uh, yeah. that he's had formed and crafted for him. That's what he spends all his money on. Of course, yeah, yeah. naturally, of course. So uh, that's so good. Yes, role playing games are so good. It's so good. Such a good hobby. So so good. Um, but some of the th- you mentioned were. Closing up, we're getting ready to go, but you, we, you mentioned a bunch of really good uh, resources and games. Where can people kind of find them? I know you mentioned Basic Fantasy Roleplay. That's just on okay. basicfantasy.org, yeah, yeah, yeah. it looks like. Well, the, good, the good news is that now, since Wizards did scan a lot of that old stuff, um, a lot of it's available as PDFs for mm-hmm. acceptable prices on Dungeon Master's Guild. You can go grab scans of the the bx 
you know, D&D box. Yeah, you can, I think yep. you can get Holmes, too, on there. Um, there's also, if you did want to play the, you know, the later revision, which we haven't really talked a whole lot about, which is just an updated, somewhat changed version of the basic rules, which is the 1983, the, which is often called Beck Me. And the reason is because, unlike Basic Expert, it, they did Basic, Expert, Companion, master immortal and each one of those is a box set with a banded level and an adventure and stuff yeah um those are all available the rules at least collected in a single volume called the rules cyclopedia which you can also get print on demand oh Um, man it's a pretty wild book because it it has like all of all of the everything Mm -hmm. for levels one through god i can't even remember how high immortals goes it goes really really high it's crazy (laughs) But, yeah, so you can find most of that stuff on Dungeon Master's Guild. If you're interested in um, finding some of the more popular reinterpretations of the rule sets that are the BX mm-hmm. and, and basic rule sets, um, a very popular one uh, is uh, Swords and Wizardry. Swords and Wizardry is pretty popular. Um, there's also uh, a company called Necrotic Gnome, and they put out their own version of it. And I'm trying to recall because I have too many and my mind is melting. But, uh, yeah, it's actually – that one's just called Old School Essentials. Old School Essentials is uh, pretty highly regarded because it's sort of the the most straightforward reinterpretation without changing the tone of the rules and things like that. Like, I would say that unless you're a collector and you really, really have to get your your hands on those box sets – there are so many really cool modern options that do play very, very similarly. There is almost a functional no difference playing with old school essentials, uh, other than the fact that they actually tried to patch some rules inconsistencies that are actually in <laughs> mm-hmm. the box sets. Yeah. So yeah, basic fantasy role playing game is awesome. Chris Gonerman's effort to like make that super accessible and free and is I respect the hell out of it. I actually DM'd him at one point we were talking about if I had had more free time, he was gonna allow me to make that um a roll 20 option but mm-hmm. i talked to someone at roll 20 and boy howdy is it really tough to actually make rules things for roll 20 oh so wow. uh yeah basic fantasy role play yeah i was pretty passionate about the idea as you can tell <laughs> uh basic fantasy role playing game is probably the best five dollars you can spend ever in your entire life for role playing other than buying maybe your first set of dice so i, I recommend that very heavily those are just on amazon he charges i think the exact cost of production almost to just print them but the rules even on the back Mm -hmm. of the set it says don't buy this book and tells you that you can go get the rules for free from his website if you would like but i like physical books so i I recommend that one for people's collection um yeah basically between those that's sort of it you know and if you look into osr it's really easy to go down a rabbit hole there's a lot of good and bad there as far as the community is Mm -hmm. concerned but it's not the rules fault right yeah uh if, if you're interested in seeing the, the origins of where Dungeons & Dragons has come from, I think it's very cool. It informs your understanding of modern rules, too. There are things in the current game yeah. that exist because of the fact that they've always been there. For good or ill, they exist, you know, so. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Hunter, this has been an absolute pleasure talking to you about old school D&D. Definitely get you on to talk more D&D at some point. Maybe even do a do- small one shot kind of hit, thing uh we didn't um, even hit ad and d we got i know we got go. we got a long way to go it can be its own little sub series i love it but more importantly where can people find you online what do you have cooking go ahead and uh plug away uh yeah so uh i my day job uh is i am the uh head of marketing and one of the lead writers 
for Berserk Studio, as you said early on. Um, I helped do most of the writing on the game Infernax. Uh, you can find Berserk Studio at B-E-R-Z-E-R-K-S-T-U-D-I-O on Twitter and everywhere. I mean, if you Google it, it comes up. Um, you can find me personally on Twitter if you wanted it for while it exists. Uh, I'm uh, I'm <laughs> true at, at Bond Hunter Bond B O N D uh, Hunter B O N D. Uh, and mostly just tweet about random things, but I do go on rants. There is a really good long one where I pulled calipers out to figure out a rules ratio in the new Pathfinder or in the new uh, Spelljammer rules. So I do t- I do tweet about D and D if you care about that. Um, but yeah, primarily I primarily Twitter and then my like wood shop. So that you can't come to my wood shop. Uh, so you can't come there. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't also know you did local... woodworking. That's awesome. Yeah. Also, my local game store. I guess if you live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and you want to roll by Etten Games, you probably have met me already. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's awesome. Uh, always good to have you on and talk to you, my friend. Um, everyone, be sure to give Hunter a follow as long as Twitter exists, and be sure to check out Infernix. It's a good X. Uh, one of my favorite Xs. It's called a Fire <laughs> Enchantment. Uh, but no, it's an absolute classic. Uh, difficult game it's so much fun especially if you're grew up in the era of castlevania and the like wonderful wonderful game so give it a check out and thank you to each and every one of you who's listened today be sure to rate and review us on your preferred podcast service as i'd really appreciate it if you have an rpg you would like us to feature on an episode tweet at underscore rpg university for as long as it exists with the hashtag rpgu with your suggestion or you can share your own favorite rpgs and moments and memories directly with me on twitter at professor rpg as always everybody stay safe stay healthy be kind to one another class dismissed